Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. Got some, it's, you know, it's getting towards the end of February here and it's about to get full swing into shed hunting and spring scouting for whitetails here in the Appalachian region. Got a, a trip planned here for coming up this weekend with Johnny Stewart, who's a past guest, and also Greg Litzinger, who was a past guest uh, that I recorded with the Total Archery Challenge last year. And those two guys, so Greg's from New Jersey, Johnny's from southwestern Pennsylvania. They're coming here. We're going to a brand new piece of public land, and we're going to scout it and do an overnight camping trip and just see you know, what we can find and more or less learn from each other. So this, I'm really excited about this trip and been traveling every single weekend to shows and events and everything else. And I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten out in the woods myself very much, which is very unlike me here, but I'd, I've got a lot of time slated off here for March to, to get some scouting in and, and get prepared for the 2019 season. So the guest I have on this week's podcast is Josh Boyd and Josh is from Northwestern Montana. He is just an absolute stud when it comes to hunting mountain whitetails, which is the the basis of this podcast, talking about western mountain whitetails, as well as he's been killing elk consistently in an area in the United States that's arguably the toughest area to kill elk in the in an area in northwestern Montana with low elk population densities and a, you know, a large predator presence and just thick, nasty, steep country. So uh, th- on this one, we'll be focusing on whitetails, but I'm definitely going to get Josh back on to talk elk hunting as he's hunted elk all over the place. So he's a, a great resource from that. And I've, I've learned a lot from Josh and really, really uh, excited to, to have him on and someone I've, I've looked up to for, for quite a while as well. So... To get into the the partners of the podcast here, start off with the University of Elk Hunting by Elk 101 and Corey Jacobson. So this resource is your one-stop shop for elk hunting knowledge, uh, planning the hunt, every single phase going through there. Corey has put together his you know, many, many years of elk hunting knowledge, and put, and he didn't leave anything out in this platform been signed up for three years now and and will continue to be a part of that so he's offered up a code for the east meets west listeners here if you type in east meets west at checkout you'll save yourself 20 bucks on a one-year membership to the university of elk hunting course then we'll dive into here heather's choice heather's choice is a, a partner as well and someone that i've used their products from the very beginning high quality healthy backpacking and hunting nutrition so the the food is dehydrated meals um, anywhere from breakfast dinners to the the highly popular packaroon snacks which is like a coconut cookie and 
So Heather has uh, also offered up a code here for the listeners. East meets West will get you free shipping on any orders over $99. Another partner of the podcast is Maven Optics. So as I introduced Maven onto the podcast here recently, it's again, if, if you've been following along with me and anything I've done even well before the podcast, you know that I've been using Maven Optics for a while, specifically the B2 9x45s for elk hunting and the B3 8x30s for whitetail hunting here in the east. So Maven is created the highest quality optics at a much lower price point than their competitors by using the direct-to-consumer uh, business model. And so Maven's offering up uh, a gift here. So anybody that uses the code EastMeetsWest-GIFT at checkout will get you a free gift with any optic order off of the website. So th- they do have a, a demo program since Maven is direct-to-consumer. You know, you're not going to find them at a Cabela's or any other retail store. So they offer up a demo program where you can try out their optics for a couple weeks, see what you think. You don't like them, you send them back. That's It's a pretty cool program that they do there and want to make sure that it's 100% you know, customer satisfaction. All right, now we're done with that. Let's roll right into the podcast here. Josh Boyd. Northwestern Montana. Let's talk mountain whitetails. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. And I'm on the line tonight here with, or today, I guess, where you're at, but with uh, Josh Boyd. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, it's still it's still day here. It's still late afternoon with the time difference between here and there. Yeah. Still looking at some, some, uh, some daylight. Yeah. And you were just telling me before we started recording here that, uh, you have a nice view for the podcast. You have to drive a little bit to make sure you have, you know, good cell reception and everything, but, uh, sounds like you have a, a good place to do it. Yeah, I do. It's, uh, where I live, it's kind of remote mountainous country and cell service is pretty spotty at my house. So it's easier to come. It's only five miles into town and it's, good cell service and then if i bump up on the hill a little ways i get a great view well i'm chatting on the phone so it's not a bad thing well cool you can't beat that so josh uh tell us a little bit about uh kind of where you live at and a little of your background uh yeah so i live in western montana um i'm kind of tucked up more in the northwest um it's kind of an out-of-the-way place. There's not a lot of a lot of highways that come through here. Matter of fact, there's just one. So most people that, that are familiar with the area usually are passing through somewhere, either to to Missoula or Glacier Park, or they're heading the other way to like Seattle. So it's um, <clears throat> it's a good place to live. It's remote. It's a tiny little spot. Uh, population of the little town I live in is like 800 people and there's it's kind of a it's kind of a depressed economy so it's it's uh it's hard for people to make a living here but it it uh has decent outdoor recreation opportunities so that's kind of one of the reasons I have decided to plant my roots here I kind of well I grew up here and uh I'd kind of wandered away in my earlier 
adult life out of high school and into college and out of college. And I ended up having an opportunity to come back here and work for the Forest Service and um, in the field of hydrology. So it, uh, I, I'm allowed to make a decent living for the, for the area. And it also allows me to get outside and, and hunt as much as possible and, and other things. I like to ski. I like to, I used to do a lot of climbing and I'd still do a lot of mountain biking and road biking and stuff like that. So it's a good place for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It sounds like and there's it. just, there's just tons, <laughs> tons of public land too. So that's, that's a big bonus. Um, as far as like hunting goes, my background is, um, I, I grew up hunting out West. I grew up in Montana. I, I learned to hunt deer, whitetails and mule deer and elk from an early age. Actually, I, I accompanied my, my dad out in the field when I was like, you know, four or five years old. And in Montana back then, the first year you could hunt, they, the earliest you could hunt was 12 I think they've changed that now. I think you can hunt deer when you're 10. But, uh, so yeah, I've been out in the woods my whole life, kicking around with my dad, my uncle, and grandfather. And then I've just sort of been doing it kind of as an adult myself. I, it's one of those things where I've, it's become a passion in my life. It's, it's been a main, main driving force for a lot of the things that I do. So okay. I, I started bow hunting as soon as I could. And, um, my my uh, my father didn't bow hunt at all. Be rifle hunted, but I had some neighbors down the street where I grew up that were in the elk archery elk hunting, and that just lit the fire. And they kind of took me under their wing and showed me some of the ropes, and I just got obsessed. And uh, so yeah, I've been kicking around hunting out west my whole life. It's it's a good place to have. It's a good place to be just because of the diversity of the animals you can hunt. Oh yeah, I mean you're saying as far as like you know having elk, mule deer, white tails, and you know black bears, anything else that in your area, and I'm sure there's even more than that. Plus all the additional, you know, like you said, outdoor recreational activities. That's that's a pretty uh, rare thing to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is, and and I've been I've been on I get on kicks when I hunt too. It's like I become I become obsessed with certain things for a while. And then they kind of, the flame kind of burns out a little bit when another obsession kicks in. Um, I'd say the exception to that for me is elk. I've always been obsessed with elk. They're kind of the main driving force of most of my my planning and, and activities have been around elk. But um, at times, the fire gets lit to go hunt spring black bear, for instance. And then I'll just, I'll be into that every spring for five or six years and just obsess about it. And then, you know, I'll, I'll kill a couple and, and then that sort of that desire wanes a little bit and I'll have something else pique my interest. Like, and you know, for your, your topic of discussion is, uh, you know, a lot of, it revolves around whitetails a lot. So I had the fire lit for whitetails well, at several different times throughout my life. But at one point, more recently for arch I was hunt I just decided I wanted to archery hunt big mature whitetails with my bow in the rut in Montana. Which happens to fall during um our general rifle season. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, dynamic for me when I started researching, you know, hunting, you know, Western mountain whitetails and through Montana and Idaho and stuff. I didn't realize that during the rut, you can really hunt them with either a bow or a rifle. Yeah, I would say, you know, you are, you are hindered somewhat with a bow. Um, it, you definitely, you start looking at techniques that, um, give you an advantage. And a lot of that is, you know, stand hunting. Um, it's, it'd be pretty dang tough to kill archery, kill a big white tail by still hunting or, um, you know, or drive around, you know, doing some pushes or anything like that. It'd be pretty tough in this country, but I could, but, um, yeah, so I, I definitely employed and researched a ton of Eastern techniques to hunt whitetails out here. And I think, you know, Eastern guys that come out this way would probably do pretty well um, once they figured out how kind of how whitetails move in this country and how, how they utilize the terrain and the vegetation and what kind of food sources they key in on at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, that's definitely something that, uh, I hope, uh, works for me when I get to go out there. Hopefully I can, uh, you know, employ some of the stuff that, that I've learned and, and, you know, have a chance at, at hunting some of these, you know, mountain whitetails of the West. It's, it's something that I, I really don't think that I was, um, really aware that was out there until a couple of years ago. And you're, you're actually one of the first people that I saw, uh, doing that. And so, Josh, you're a you know a sick uh, big game ambassador, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. And and I like to I like to think that whitetails are big game. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> yeah. they got they have they have some specialized gear for sure. Yeah. No. And and it's the reason why. So that I think that I don't know how if that's how I found you or maybe I met you at ATA show first a couple years ago. But either way, um, I, I started seeing some. I, I remember a specific photo of yours with just this big white tail, heavy beams, everything like that. And I'm pretty sure it was on Instagram that I, I saw it, and I was like, "Geez, those kind of white tails are, you know, out there." I thought I didn't think they lived, you know, in the the mountains of, of the West, like, you know, cause I just, I don't know. I just, I guess I never thought of it really. And that kind of opened my eyes to that, that ability to be able to hunt them. Yeah. You know, this part of the country was used to be on the radar of, um, big whitetail fanatics back in the like seventies and eighties and maybe, maybe a little bit into the early nineties, but, um, it kind of started petering out a little bit. Once uh, a lot of the stuff in the Midwest started blowing up as far as just, you know, the amount of habitat that was being generated and places leased and groomed for giant whitetails. But, you know, Western Montana, North Idaho, even Central Idaho, um, it produced a lot of giant whitetails. Um, Region 1 in Montana was, uh, I can't remember how many deer that are over 200 that have been killed out of like the flathead the sealy swan country sanders county lincoln county all you know the whole region one area of montana and then you bump over the border in the boundary county and bonner county in idaho there's some i mean there's a bunch of giant deer um that have been killed there's definitely is we're definitely not in the heyday um but Back when I first started growing up, 
and hunting, there you could there was a potential to shoot a Boone and Crockett whitetail in any drainage you walked up. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't exist today. I mean, that's changed drastically. There is still a potential just because of the, the, the terrain we have, the amount of cover we have, you know, how much roadless areas we have, you know, deer can survive to an older age class, but, um, things have changed here you know they it's definitely not the heyday you don't you don't see that you know those 140 150 inch deer just trotting around all over the place why why do you think which that's changed common, which was uh you know you know everybody's pretty pretty quick to blame it on on wolves which they, they definitely have uh a, a part to play for sure um i think it's a, a fairly complex story um, some of it comes back to the amount of, uh, vegetation management that's happening out on the forest. So back in the seventies and eighties, 60s, seventies and eighties, there were, there was a lot of brand new virgin timber harvest and it opened up a ton of new edge, new browse, um, there wasn't a lot of roaded areas yet on the winter ranges. Predators were controlled quite heavily. Um, so, you know, vegetation management's definitely played a key and then, um, predator management as well. And then we just, you know, things, things have grown up and we've had some hard winters and, just the uh, habitats changed you know there's been a lot of fire suppression um mountain lions are now a game species in montana where they used to be a predator so now they're on a in our area they're on a permit so there's just a limited number that are killed every year back back in the 70s and 80s they were they were killed readily and there were they killed a lot and there there's a lot of black bears killed too in the 70s and 80s you know, our spring bear hunter numbers are way down compared to what was happening in the mid eighties up here. There used to be just truckload after truckload of guys from Utah that would come up and hunt spring black bear and they shot every bear they saw. Interesting. So they, they so they, they, cur- they curtailed a lot of that spring bear harvest by, by shutting the season down early, like two weeks, the, the prime two weeks they cut off because they were thinking there was a lot of black bear over har- over harvest. So it kept those numbers trimmed. Then, of course, there were no wolves on the landscape at that time. I think the first pack popped up in the North Fork of the Flathead in the early 80s. Might have been the late, it might have been like 79 or 80, 81, somewhere in there. And they were pretty limited in where they were ranging. And there were a couple other little stragglers popped up here and there, but the number of packs in the landscape were, it was basically nothing compared to what it is today. And then of course, you know, there was a, with a lot of the logging road building that we have, there's a lot of noxious weeds were introduced and some of that came into effect on some of the winter range areas. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's a huge issue, but it is an issue and it's, it play, probably plays a small part. So I guess, it's a complex problem and um i don't want to sound all doom and gloom because it's still good good deer hunting it's just not 
not what the heyday was like that I can still kind of remember. Yeah. I mean, boy, I was going to say you, you grew up there, so you've seen the kind of transition. So to you, yeah, it, it, it might not be, you know, what it used to be. Um, but you're still, you're, what you're saying is it's still not terrible by any means. Right. And I, you know, and I have these, I've had these conversations with other, other diehard local whitetail hunters who, who showed up in this area. They kind of, one guy in particular that I, I talk with all the time, he, he moved out here from Wisconsin in, uh, like, I think he said he came out here in 87, 88, somewhere in there. And he, he showed up kind of right in the middle of our, the peak of our, of our giant, giant whitetail herds. And, um, he's, he's kind of said the same thing. He's like, it was nothing for me to pass up 150, 160 inch deer just because there's always that opportunity of that 180 stepping out. And, you know, he's killed a couple that are in that, in that range. I know he has one over 170 inches and he's got one that's like 182 or something, 181. Wow. But anyway, he's like, he's like now he's like, man, if it's 140 inch deer, there's a good chance you might not see another one like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is still a great deer, especially for a general season, you know, and our, our season's five weeks long. It's a rifle season or any weapon season. I should say you can use anything you want um, within a couple legal parameters, but, um, so, you know, most people pack rifles and most people shoot a deer. There's a lot of deer killed, but, um, just not a lot of giant deer being killed like there used to be. Yeah. That, that so is a I've pretty got, long you know, season, these, you know, it is, it really is. Um, Idaho, North Idaho has got a slightly different season set up. But they they have a separate whitetail season that starts earlier than than mule deer in North Idaho. Then um, they've got a pretty healthy whitetail population. But I I think their numbers are similar to ours. I don't think they've seen maybe quite the the decline that we have, but um, it's real similar. I think the trend is still still there. You know, it's a declining population or declining population of older age class deer. Yeah. Does, um, as far as, as far as the, so North Idaho, Northwest Montana, Western Montana, all those places, do you, do you have uh, a grizzly population as well in those areas? Yeah, that's another thing that's, that's changed too. We do have a grizzly population. Um, North Idaho has, um, quite a few bears. I, I don't know the, the number right off the top of my head, but I know the area that I live in has, They've estimated it around pretty accurately, actually around 50, 55 bears in this, in this ecosystem. And then the Northern continental divide ecosystem over in the flathead has a a big population of bears, um, well over a thousand in that, that population. So, and that's the stuff like, uh, from Glacier Park down into the Bob Marshall, you know, it spills out onto the front into the Swan range and then over to the missions and all those areas have big whitetails and, um, they've had big, you know, big whitetail herds, uh, in the past and there's still a, you know, healthy population there. Um, you go further South in some of that whitetail country down around Missoula and South into the Bitterroot, um, occasional straggler bear wanders in and out. 
into that country, but no, no grizzlies, a lot of wolves down in that part of the world. And I believe their wolves are not their wolves. Their mountain lions are on, um, permits as well down there. It's like in the, in the West fork of the Bitterroot. I think that's all permit. So, and that, that area used to have just a massive population of whitetails as well. Hmm. But, uh, so yeah. Um, and a, and a big part, I think what's keeping a lot of our whitetail numbers down here, um, just to, just to round, round up or round off the subject is the, the weather we've been having. We've been having some pretty harsh springs. And so that's knocking back a lot of our fawns. It seems like those, those springs that just don't, or those winters that just don't want to give up and they just roll into those, you know, we get some late, late dumps down into like, uh, you know, late March, early April, those, those really knock the snot out of those, uh, those yearling fawns. Yeah. You know? So, you know, you lose a big, a big chunk of that, that class of deer and, and that this year was really tough to find a mature deer here just because we had, we had two really harsh winters. Um, they were big winters and long, long late springs. And that was in 2011 and 2012. Um, and we had another big one. Well, just last year, but those 2011 and 12 year class, um, those would have been our, our big mature bucks from, you know, this year, next year and last year. So, um, you know, we had a couple moderate winters in there, and there's still plenty of deer running around. Mm-hmm. It only takes only takes one. Yeah, no, no, definitely. That's that's the uh, right one. That's an interesting uh, kind of mix of things that are you know playing into your age structure and you know the size and and everything of the herd with your white tails that we don't see in the east. Um, from a lot of those perspectives, the as far as like the way the timber cutting and everything goes, that that definitely has a play in it. But as far as predators and things like that, it's not as as prevalent. I mean, we have coyotes and black bears and stuff like that, but not not the you know the wolves, grizzlies, mountain lions, things like that. That and I'm sure that I mean this is again assuming, but that the white tails um, kind of adapt. Like I'm sure, like when the wolves came in at first, that it was a little bit tougher, and they probably did pretty well with getting a lot of deer. But maybe as as they, you know, adapted to living with them that they got better with it. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's just kind of an assumption from my part. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, you know, we also in that time frame it, it had gotten uh, the ability to, to hunt and kill wolves, which plays, you know, a, a fairly large part into it. But also, you know, once the wolves eat them, eat their their food stores down it gets tough for them to make a living too so the the pack sizes have you know kind of started to dwindle and disappear i don't think there's as many wolves in this part of the world right now um that's just my observation i could be way off but i don't see as many tracks when i'm out in the woods anymore so it seems like the wolf you know after the the deer population is sort of kind of dropped off so did the predator population it started to follow suit um but yeah you're right when the wolves first appeared it was like it was perfect opportunity perfect conditions i guess for packs to grow and they did i mean they just exploded across the landscape the 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 you know um 
just to, for your listeners to, uh, I guess for their background information is, uh, our wolves in this part of the world weren't, weren't introduced. They came here naturally. Um, they, most of them migrated down out of Canada. So they weren't put here as the, as an experimental population, like they were down in Yellowstone. So everybody talks about how wolves were transplanted and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, these things showed up on their own. They moved for the most part. I don't, there might've been one or two plucked from like a problem pair from down in Yellowstone and dropped off. But I mean, there were packs established here well before that. So most of these wolves were just, they just naturally came back on their own. And I saw wolf tracks when I was growing up as a kid um, out in some of these remote areas. I remember, actually, I distinctly remember the first pair that I saw and I could not believe the size of the track. And I, and, and I thought that is the biggest dog track I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, there's no way that could be a dog. I mean, there, we are so far from any house, any remote, you know, little ranch house that cannot be a dog. And then, you know, I could tell the way they were running down the road, the tracks that they were definitely a, a wild canid. So, and that was way back in the, that was probably like 80, that's probably around 1990. So that was six, that was six years before they put him in Yellowstone. Was it 90? No, it was 94. It was like four years before they put him in Yellowstone. So there were, and there was like a nine mile pack. That was kind of a famous pack. I think there's a book written about them. So there were some packs that were coming back in this area beforehand. But when they, when the whitetail population started to rebound after a a major winter we had in the mid nineties, the wolves were here on the landscape to take advantage of that. And, and they, they ate wolves like, like kids in a candy store. (laughs) They, they went, they went at it or they ate deer just like, yeah, like crazy. So anyway. Yeah. Interesting. So Josh. It sounds like, sounds like you're tempted. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead with what you're going to say. I was just going to ask you. So it sounds like you're potentially going to come out and hunt either Western Montana at some point or Northern Idaho and try to kill, kill a mountain buck. Yeah, yeah. So it's um it's still up in the air yet whether it's going to happen this year or not, but I'm pushing for it. I really uh I really want to get out there um like you said to one of those two locations and been doing a lot of e-scouting online, you know, talking to people like yourself that are, you know, local to the area and everything and there's just something about it that's really wanting me to to get out there and 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 kind of see too if like if some of the things that I'm, you know, doing in the, the Appalachian mountain range, you know, carry over to that. And then, and hopefully, you know, by, you know, talking to people like you and everything, get, get some information as well as I have already. And to be able to kind of compare, you know, how you're hunting them versus how I would kind of approach it and, you know, come up with a game plan for it. I just, I just, I don't know. It's something that's not talked about a whole lot as far as hunting those Western mountain whitetails and, and, uh, who knows, maybe it's for a good reason. I don't know, but, but I, I really, there's just something about it that's drawing me to wanting to do that. And I, and I understand that it's definitely probably not going to be an easy hunt by any means, but, um, I, I, I really want to give it a try. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. That's for sure. Um, just, 
trying to get one, just trying to find one and get it within bow range. A nice mature buck is, I mean, that's a challenge anywhere. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know, I'm not super familiar with the Appalachians, but it sounds like it's, you know, similar. You guys, I was listening to a couple of the other podcasts and it sounds like, um, I can't remember their names, but you had them on there from Pennsylvania and they were hunting some, some deer and they were spending a lot of time scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's, that's a lot of what is required here to be successful. You do, know, you, do you do a lot of scouting for whitetails? You know, I, uh, not anymore, not as much as I used to. I still, I still like to get out and scout as much as possible. I'm more limited on the amount of time I'm, you know, I have available to get out and do it. But, um, like I said, when, when the fire was lit and I was, you know, all crazy about trying to archery kill some big, big woods deer, I, uh, I spent a ton of time scouting. I put in tons of time walking around, looking at rubs, figuring out rub lines, shed hunting, bedding areas, learning topography what vegetation was where how they were utilizing everything so yeah i just put a ton of time in um like i said now it's it's a little more limited i still have some spots that are good from the that are still you know full of deer from my previous scouting efforts but things change you know our landscape's pretty dynamic so you know everything nothing's constant you know those deer quit using some things for whatever reason i don't know it's part of that puzzle that's kind of fun to try to figure out yeah i mean i don't know if it's this way with with you but in here in pennsylvania and a lot of the spots i hunt they they're always doing different timber cuts and everything else which is good but it can definitely change the way the deer use the land and sometimes they'll do it in like August, you know, right before the season starts or anything else. I go in and I'm like, geez, everything looks a hundred percent different. And, you know, that's just, you know, adapting to it. But there's definitely areas that I know me personally that I can kind of go back to every year as a fallback plan, not even walking in there since the year before and have a good chance at, you know, seeing something or, or being in a, in a good position the way that they, they use the land. But so there's, yeah, I guess there's, there's uh, a little bit of that here too with is, you know, when you have a good spot, it can be good for a while. You just don't know how long, I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. When stuff grows up too, that's a big part of where I live is a lot of times, you know, an area might be good for five, eight years, but then the vegetation starts getting a little too thick and they just quit using it or they're still using it. You just can't see them. Um, so yeah, things change change quite a bit. So it's it's good to to keep scouting and keep keep coming up with fresh areas and you just you never know what you're gonna find out there. So Yeah. It's a big that's a big driver for I think most hunters. They like to explore, they like to find stuff and they're kinda like gamblers. You just you never know when they're gonna you know, hit twenty one. Yeah. It's gonna happen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> keep playing it. What's uh what's like the terrain and everything look like? I know you said it's mountainous, but as far as like where these whitetails are living at, kind of give me a little bit of a background on, you know, what the forest looks like, what the the terrain looks like and and kind of where they're living at. So, you know, where I'm at, it's pretty much 
valley wall to valley wall is timber, like from mountaintop to mountaintop, all the way down. So we have these big, I wouldn't say they're big mountain valleys, but they're mountain valleys that have some big flats and some big rivers dissecting them. And there's deer down there. And you go up onto the the slopes of the, the main mountains and there's deer there. And then you can go even higher and find whitetails up there. So in a lot of them will transition down closer to the valley bottoms in November, if we have a bunch of snow, but if we have a light, you know, in November is one of those months around here. It's like, you don't know if you're going to get snow. Sometimes there's a foot and a half and sometimes there's nothing. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's just heavy timber. There's a lot of like rolling timbered mountains, but they're big. I mean, they're, you know, 3000 feet above the valley bottom. So they're, they're pretty tall. They're expansive. Um, lots of water here. So there's a ton of little dissected streams coming out of the mountains. Um, and it seems like depending on your aspect, your vegetation changes considerably. So you can go from a, a Southern aspect, which is covered in kind of open like ponderosa dug fir type of trees maybe some open stands of larch to wrapping around to a more eastern face and it's a little thicker dug fir um if you go on the north facing sides of stuff or down on these creek bottoms there's a lot of hemlock and cedar just thick thick dark dark stuff with nothing really growing on the ground just a really dense canopy um, and then if you go a little higher, you can find these mixed stands of fir and lodgepole and spruce and lots of other, lots of other species. And, um, those deer use them all and they use them differently at different times of the year. It seems like, um, yeah, I mean, it's fairly complex and there's a lot of nuances, I guess, but I, I tend to like. I like to find those dark, dark pockets where those deer like to hide. Some, and we have, you know, we have big flats too. We have big timbered flats and a lot of our big flats have been cut over. They've been cut over maybe two or three times since a lot of them are in the valley bottom. And that's when, you know, those are, that was the easiest timber to cut, you know, back at the turn of the last century. So they were cut like, you know, early 1900s and then they were cut again in the 1950s and then they were cut again in the 1990s so there's a lot of different age classes of trees here too so it's and and they had different techniques that they use for harvesting so there's some places the ground has the soil's been really compacted and trees didn't grow back all that well so they're just full of brush and shrubs and stuff so it just kind of creates these little micro sites that have different species growing in them. And um, those are kind of neat areas to try to figure out how deer use them, if they use them and, and hunt. But those big, those great big timbered flats are, are kind of fun to hunt too, just because their their features are so subtle on them. Do you, do you, uh, tend to, do you tend to like stick to the edges of them? Like when you get those, those giant, you know, timber cut flats and everything like that, how would you kind of pick out a location to to hunt with that? Well, if it's cut, if it's, 
if it's a clear cut, I definitely, I definitely stick to the edges and I'll, I, I'll tend to look for stuff that's like back off the edge a ways, um, and try to key out some, some key travel corridors to kind of force deer past my stand. Um, sometimes that, you know, all these clear cuts that are, that were put in or just all these crazy different shapes. And some of them have little, little curves to them or some of them bottleneck down and then spread back out. And a lot of times you'll find some pretty key corridors at those bottlenecks. And, you know, it's kind of your classic, your classic, uh, whitetail hunting. It's just, you're looking for just little subtle things to push deer and keep them kind of corralled in a certain area when they're traveling back and forth between areas. So, but yeah, if these big, big flats, if they're big and they're timbered, man, that's, that's a tough one. Um, you might find something that a buck's using just randomly, but it, it, it seems like the use on those giant timbered flats are pretty random. They just are kind of all over the place, mm-hmm. but it seems like they're cruising across those flats. They're cruising somewhere and so I'm looking for a place where they want to go and where they're headed. So sometimes on the far side of the flat, it might be a mile away. It might be a little draw heading up another ridge, like a side of a mountain. And they might be going up partway up that mountain and bedding or something like that. And so I'll kind of key in on stuff where they're going to funnel off that flat and then go bed or go to feed the other direction. Okay. But as far as like hunting a a big wide flat, man, it's like you could roll the dice and sit out there. You could kill one, but it could be, it could be days before a deer wanders past. Yeah. What you had mentioned as far as them going to like a, a food source or anything, what, what is there? Um, and I'm sure this is another complex answer, but as far as do they have any like main food sources or are they more browsing on stuff? You know, um, earlier in the hunting season, um, when I, by that, I mean more like October, you know, they're, they're, they're eating a lot of grass. They're, they're, they're eating grass and, uh, maybe some, some annuals that are out still alive in like clear cuts in the riparian areas along streams, more moist areas and like little depressions and stuff like that. But once we get start getting some weather and that grass gets covered up, a lot of them will start going to browse. So they're starting eating more woody shrubs. And then at some point um, in this part of the world, if we get a bunch of snow, they transition to eating moss, moss out of the trees. Huh? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's that brown or that dark, dark kind of black moss that hangs down. Man, they eat a lot of that stuff. Really? And that stuff's everywhere. Yeah. So they just wander around and eat that stuff and just, yep, they're happy. Then they winter on that. They live on that stuff, which I don't know how they do it, but, and, you know, they also eat a lot of other woody shrubs too, but, um, they, eat, they, they round out a lot of their diet with that, with that black moss. And, um, if you're ever around a fresh logging job, you know, in the middle of the winter, that they're always just loaded with deer. They come in to eat the moss out of the tops, out of the trees. Huh. So you know, Josh, I was hoping uh, you were going to give me that. You know, one liner. Like they're going to go feed here. 
but I, I had I knew I knew better than that that it was going to be <laughs> complex. You know, they feed on the, the yeah. brows and everything else. It's it's I I knew that was going to be kind of your answer. I didn't know the specifics on it, but I figured <laughs> that uh, yeah. that's what makes them hunting those so difficult. <laughs> but you know, in, there's areas in North Idaho that have a lot more ag in the in their valley bottoms. So like over in Bounder, or Boundary County and Bonner County, you know, there's a lot of hay meadows over there and some crop. I don't even know what, exactly what they grow over there, but there's there's some ag that butts right up against the mountainsides, and those deer key in on some of that stuff. What it is, I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I don't even <laughs> profess to even know what, what they grow over there. But I do know they use that stuff, and they, they will stick to, they'll stick to alfalfa fields, if there happens to be a local alfalfa field, I've actually, I killed a deer several years ago, just, just by accident. I just, I threw a stand up not too far off of an alfalfa field and it had been raining a whole bunch and that kind of got the alfalfa sprouting again and the deer started hitting it. And, um, I had a nice buck strut right in 20 yards, not even that 15, just perfect broadside. Um, and killed him but he was out they were out in these uh in the alfalfa which is just a little tiny hay meadow down off the river bottom and uh if you can find a situation like that it's good to go but you can't rely on it you know it's only under certain conditions where those are good because and we don't have cropland here so for you know clear cuts logging logging units that are you know two to eight years old they definitely use. So I, I, I'll sit like if I'm rifle hunting deer, I'll definitely sit those edges. I'll, I'll creep the edge right at daylight and just go, you know, just still hunt it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll just, I'll pick up if there's a little point I can see most of the unit in, I'll just, I'll sit on that in the evening or right. I'll, even all day I'll sit there and sometimes you'll catch a deer, just a buck cruising across that thing, especially during the rut. Mm-hmm which is, you know, you never know where they're going to be in the rut. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, the worst time to key on a specific deer, which I'm sure that's uh, a little tougher to do, you know, there and everything as far as the from what you had told me in the past, those deer move a lot and can, you know, change elevation and train quite a bit. But as far as um, during the rut, I mean, you definitely have, in my opinion, a greater opportunity at deer. Do you, do you, um, key in on anything specific when you're hunting the rut? Yeah, I, I just kind of key in on, um, travel corridors. Um, I'll, I'll try to catch them. Basically I'll try to like set up where I know does want to be and where does move through and I'll just sit on those and have, and you know, it's a lot of it comes back from a lot of the scouting that I've done, but it's using, it's just using a lot of the, the terrain mm-hmm. to kind of pinch things down. Um, and they're like everything else. They, even in a big timbered environment, a lot of the times they like to travel through a low spot. You know, they want to stay out of sight from other, you know, there's predators after them in, in the woods. So, you know, they don't want to be seen by a mountain lion or, a wolf or whatever. So they'll travel these little low swales 
between points. They'll cr- they'll cross, you know, a saddle on a ridge line, stuff like that. So I'll I'll key in on stuff like that. Okay. Um, and then I, I I also like to hunt. I like to hunt previous year's sign if I can. If I know that buck's still alive, I'll key in on that. I'll look for you know multiple years worth of rubs in an area like you know i don't know about where you're at but here a lot of times if there's a big dominant buck in the area he'll rub the same tree multiple years in a row um and i kind of key in on that and i'll try to hunt those rub lines the next year before the rut kicks off because it seems like here that they start they do they make their rubs pretty consistently before the rut and once the rut is in full swing, they're often they're often running. Yeah, <laughs> they might they, they're probably still in the area, but you just don't know where they're going to be and when they're going to come back through. So it's more of a crapshoot, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, like, um, if you were, all right, say you don't live there and weren't able to scout it in the spring or anything, is there anything specific if you were looking at a map like that you would key in on to to check out and with that being said, when you would go out to hunt there, would you um, would you recommend like taking a couple days more or less to scout, or or try or how would you approach that coming from an out of state perspective? Say you were going to Idaho. Yeah, so I would do I do like everybody probably these days does a lot of Google or scouting, mm-hmm. so you can kind of mm-hmm. narrow narrow stuff down pretty quickly just by looking at Google earth imagery. Um, you know, you have to take, take into the, into account that a lot of that imagery is a couple years old. Some of it in our areas, you know, it's, you know, four years old now, almost five years old. So a lot of the vegetation's changed. It's, it's a little thicker in real life than it is in, on the imagery, but you can get things narrowed down by that. And I would, I look for clear cuts, with some some big areas of timber between other clear cuts and so i'd kind of key in on that and have some areas kind of somewhat lined out maybe three or four different places to check out and if i'm going on a 10-day hunt anywhere three of those days man are scouting like i don't i think it's worth spending a good chunk of time scouting and figuring stuff out before you actually start hunting Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just pays off. It just, it makes you more focused and it just narrows so, so much of it down. Um, so yeah, I would definitely come out, either come out early and if you can't just spend a couple days whittling it down Yeah, and, and, you know, ground truthing everything and coming up, looking for sign, figuring, yeah, just figuring stuff out. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's big country anywhere in Western Montana and, and central and North Idaho. It's, it's big country. And once you set foot out in, in some of these stands of timber, it's like, Holy cow, it's a long ways across this flat. I didn't think it was this big. Yeah. Um, yeah. Google, Google earth is uh, famous for that. I learned that when I first started hunting elk, <laughs> you know, I'm like, Oh, I'll go check this out. And then in a few hours I'll go check this out. Yeah. Okay. That takes all day to get there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, funny. I would, I would, you know, I'd definitely, definitely do your homework 
online, but then, you know, I would, I would, I would budget a couple minimum of two days to try to figure stuff out. And the nice thing about here, you can hang your stands and leave them and no one's going to touch them. You know, if you do find some sets that are just like perfect, I need to, I need to put a stand here and I'm going to hunt this thing several different days, but I also want to hunt someplace else. So you can go hang multiple sets and, and have them set up all season and no one's going to screw with them unless they're like right on a gated road, right out of a main town or something like that. And you see boot tracks all over, but for the most part, no one's really going to screw with your stuff. Yeah. Which is nice. I I usually leave, if I, if I'm hunting whitetails and I'm hanging stands, I leave them up all year. I'm not all year, all season. I'll throw them up and I'll go back and get them about, you know, December, January, after the season's closed, I'll go back and pull them. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's, that's good. Is, I mean, is that, are you kind of saying that the, the hunting pressure is a little bit lower or is it just because there's so much land that, that running into people is, um, a little bit tougher or maybe that the fact that they just don't want to carry it out either. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's, it's both. I mean, it's the hunting pressure is definitely lower than back east. Um, and we just have, it's just such massive country that you can, you can get away from people. And like, you know, here, like anywhere else, the, the further you put your boots away from a, a, a drivable road, the, the more you're going to, you know, have it to yourself. So if you, if you walk a half a mile or a mile away from your truck, you're, you might see somebody, but it's not likely. Wow. So, and it's, it's kind of that way all over the West, you know, mm-hmm. at least the places I've hunted, but you know, elk hunting. I've hunted quite a few different places and if you just get a little ways away from the truck, man, you're not going to see too many people. So everybody wants one close to the vehicle. And there's a lot of people that shoot them close to the vehicle. Well, you know, one of the techniques, you know, in this part of the world is drive, drive logging roads until you see a deer and then you shoot it out of your truck window, which is not legal. You have to get out of your truck and get off the road, but it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, but for those who want an adventure, it's here. You can have it. There's plenty of country. It's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of whitetails and a lot of public ground to go poke around on. Yeah. That's, One thing that's I will cool. say if, if for people coming out, um, you know, m- there's a lot of, uh, commercial timber ground that's out here as well. Um, and they have various rules on how that is accessed by the public. Some areas are just wide open. Some little chunks get leased to like private entities, private hunting clubs, but other ones have like, like a sign in procedure or you might have to buy a permit. So, um, if you're looking to come out to, especially in Idaho, I know that goes on a little more than it does in Montana. Definitely check with the, the, the timber company that owns that property and see what their rules and regulations are. Yeah, no, that's but a, most of the time a, they're, they're open. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what Pennsylvania is too. And it's stuff that doesn't show up that you normally would see. But if I see, again, that's just from me growing up with it. If, if I see a timber company owning it, usually you can contact them or look on their website and they have public, you know, knowledge on it. Or there's places I've hunted in Ohio that we just go and 
get a written permit and it's free. Sometimes there's ones that cost like $20 or whatever it is, but they'll, they'll allow you to hunt it. And that kind of really cuts down on the hunting pressure just because people don't know it's available. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I would have to say some of our better whitetail hunting right now is on that private timber company, just because a lot of it's been cut recently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of fresh, fresh whitetail or fresh uh, clear cuts on some of that stuff. So, um, it's a little more open. Um, they do more active management on that stuff and some, it's a lot, uh, but there's some places that are just like huge swaths of clear cut and there's just no cover. So there's, you know, you kind of got to weed that out too a little bit. Not, you know, they like clear cuts, but they don't like giant, giant ones. And they like to have some cover nearby where they can hide. Hmm. So there's okay. a happy, there's a happy medium. Interesting. So with, um, is, so with that being said, if you had, you know, a week to 10 days to go somewhere, what week and month would you kind of, would you gear in towards? Um, if you want to hunt active rutting deer and have a chance that probably the biggest, the biggest bucks running around would be, I would say that last week in November. Okay. For this part of the world. Yeah. They are, they're actively chasing and, and seeking and breeding. That week before is pretty good as well. Um, but right up to the first of December is really good. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, in Montana season, it always ends. Our general rifle season ends the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And that varies from year to year on what date that is. But, uh, Idaho in the panhandle, they run their whitetail season to December 1st every, every year. So it's pretty consistent closure. So you can, you know, you can really plan on hunting that last week if you want, depending on whatever year you're headed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, and I've seen some absolute donikers running around that first week of December. Some of the, actually, I would say the top five of my biggest bucks that I've seen that first week of December. Really? And they're still rutting at that point. They, they're 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 chasing does. They're actively chasing does. So I, you know, I, and I might they might be like a a second cycle coming in about that time. Um, and so there's a limited number of does coming in. So they're just act just getting really active and getting with it. Um, but yeah, I've seen some giants. I've been out cat hunting with some buddies that first week that's when our season opens up that first week of december for mountain lions and um seeing a couple like hop across the road it would just your jaw would just hit the floor um and actually last last year i saw a giant that first week of december came back from thanksgiving break and was out in the woods doing some work and i my work partner and i were just kind of cruising through this big timbered flat and I started seeing some giant rubs on some trees and they were multiple year rubs. They, you know, they'd use these, this bucket, use these trees several different years. And I, I told this gal that was with me, it's like, man, there's a big buck living in here. And she's like, really? And so I kind of told her, you know, about the rubs and 
that type of stuff and showed her some of the trails coming down off the mountain. And we probably walked another 10 minutes and just an absolute giant hanging out with a doe 40 yards away, just stood there broadside, oh. strutted around for a, a good, I would say a solid minute stood there. Oh, he was a beautiful buck. And I wanted to go back and hunt him this year, but I didn't, I didn't get a chance to go after him just because I, I had a, a late season Utah rifle permit. That's highly, highly hard to draw, like really tough draw odds. So I figured I better go, better go hunt Utah boy. Elk. Well, while I have a tag in my pocket. Yeah. I don't blame you there. <laughs> But that that buck, that buck is on my radar for sure. He is an he was an absolute giant. So they're out there. I don't know where he lives. You don't hear. I mean, I don't. I've talked to several people about that area, and no one's really said that they've seen a big buck in that area. And I know a pretty, you know, a pretty solid whitetail hunter that lives close by, and he he hasn't caught wind of it so. Who knows where that deer comes from? He might have just shown up from 15 miles away just for a couple of weeks and then just disappears again. Yeah, that's that's crazy to me. That's um, so like the, the a lot of the bucks and stuff there. When you when you're talking like an older age class, what what is what do you consider an, an older age class for out there? How old do these bucks typically get? Oh, I I'd say our like our biggest of the big are they're like seven to eight years old when they, when they're like fully, like fully mature mm-hmm. when they've reached their potential they're for antler, antler size and body size. Yeah. Um, that buck you were talking about earlier in the podcast that I showed you on Instagram, that buck, I think the biologist said he was eight and a half. I, I draw, I stopped by the game check and he, he aged him and he was like, yeah, things seven and a half, but I'm pretty sure he's eight and a half. So he's an old deer. Yeah. Um, and I've killed, I did kill a deer several years ago. It was 12, 12 years um, old. He had, Oh, he was just gum. He was, I think he was senile too. He was just, he didn't know what was up. Oh my. But, yeah. Yeah. He just, he just committed suicide. <laughs> But yeah, so our, our deer, like when I'm talking mature deer, I'm talking like six to eight. Yeah. So that's a, you know, it's a pretty old deer. Um, you know, some people consider a mature deer, you know, four, mm-hmm. but, um, which I'm not going to argue that point, but I don't think they're as big as they're going to get at four. Oh no, definitely. When you, yeah. yeah, you get to that, that age group, you're in a whole nother class of deer that's for sure yeah definitely so um but yeah they they can live fairly old out here um just to just have to have the right conditions they got to get you know roll those dice and get lucky and have some you know easy winners and escape a bunch of predators and then don't get shot by some road hunters and next thing you know you got a giant deer yeah but um they don't come easy. I'm sure not. Did do, do does calling sequences work at all during a rut? Do you call it all? I do. Um, rattling works r- really well at certain times. Um, 
definitely during the, the pre-rut, it seems like, like before the peak of the rut. Even during the rut, I've rattled some bucks in, but I've had there. I used to rattle a lot from the ground when I was just still hunting. I would just kind of still hunt, and then I would set up and rattle. Man, I I know I blew it on a bunch of big deer by doing that because they those big deer come in downwind almost every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started rattling out of a tree stand, and I saw how often they came in downwind. And that's when I refuse to rattle from the ground ever again. Like, this is not going to happen. Unless there's something, like I have a hard backstop behind me where I know nothing's coming in behind me. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's amazing how they key, they can key in exactly where you're at and they'll just come strutting in. Some of them will come straight to the tree. But a lot of times they'll come in, they'll sneak in, and you'll hear them every once in a while. They'll just, you might hear a little twig or something, but then you turn around and there's one standing behind you looking. So they're, they're like ghosts. They just appear out of nowhere. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, probably. No, that's good. To, that's good yeah, to hear the but, kind of the similarities and the differences. I mean, that's, I have the same experience with rattling. Um, I haven't done it a whole lot. I've done it a little bit more in the last couple of years, but, and I've had bucks come in, but those bigger deer, like you said, they tend to circle downwind, even out of a tree stand. It's tough to, you know, even get an opportunity at them because they, they're, they're smart with it and, or they'll come out to, they'll get to the edge of the thick stuff and look out and say, if there's like a little opening or a trail in front of me, if they don't see anything out there, they're not coming in. Yeah. 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 They're, they're pretty cagey, but they do come in. Sometimes they will just come tearing in and stand there all wild eyed looking around and that makes it all worthwhile. It's pretty fun, but I would say. You know, if I rattled 10, 10 times, I might get a response once, you know, I might get maybe, maybe, maybe one time might even be once every 20. So it's not, not high percentage, but it's enough to make it worthwhile. Yeah. And it, and it does work. And I've never, I mean, I've used grunt calls. I've used the little bleat, the little bleats and stuff like that. And, um, I've used those calls and you know, 20, 30 minutes later, a deer comes walking by. Was it because I was calling or was it, uh, I was just in a good spot and he decided to walk by. It's hard saying. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't act like, they didn't act like they were coming in to my calling. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I know it hasn't, I haven't scared any deer away by using it. I've used it. I've used calls and stuff with them in sight and they just kind of look at you and, they just kind of continue doing what they're doing, but yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that matter of fact, that, that big buck, my biggest whitetail to date, um, I did, I rattled that deer in. Yeah. He came in. Well, actually I rattled and then there was some deer in front of me, some small bucks that were just barely within sight of me through these, through the screen of timber they were probably like 60, 80 yards away. They started kind of sparring and they were like small, like, you know, little three by fours, four by fives. And they were just kind of clicking and clacking and doing their thing. And they, they ended up calling like two more smaller bucks into their group. And so they, there's like a group of four now sparring and, and messing around in front of me. And, uh, so I just hung my antlers up and let them kind of do their thing. And I decided this, I better kind of pay attention and see if, 
one of those big ghosts was slipping in some way, somehow. And I happened to look over my left shoulder and I could see the top of this giant, this big, big larch tree. Um, probably, I don't know, it's probably like, I don't know, three inches, four inches in diameter. And I could just see the top of it stick, sticking up out of a bunch of other trees. And it was just whipping back and forth, whip, whip, whip. And I thought, oh man, something is tearing the snot. It looked like a bull elk whipping a tree, raking a tree. And then out walks this big whitetail. And he came strutting down to those other deer, but he kind of took the path like right down in front of me. And that's when I, I got a shot at him. Huh. So, yeah, pretty fun. Yeah. So when, when talking you're about this makes talking about this makes me want to go home whitetail. <laughs> Am I going to get, is that going to get you fired up to, <laughs> to get back on that kick and obsession? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So last few years I've been obsessed with elk for sure, but also uh, mule deer. I've just been hunting mule deer a lot lately. And, uh, they're awesome and they're neat critters, but hunting whitetails is pretty fun too. I've, I think I've killed more big whitetails than I have big mule deer for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the product of me wanting to hunt whitetails more than mule deer. Yeah. But they're and both, they're both, they're both equally fun, but. And your yeah, tag is only good for excited. one or the other, right? In Montana? Uh, in Montana, it's, in Montana, it's good for either or. Okay. So yeah, you, you get one, you can shoot one deer and it depends on the district you're in. But most districts, it's open for either whitetail or mule deer. Okay. So you can you can shoot either one if if whatever you happen to come across. Um, and man, I'm not even going to talk about Idaho. I know you could buy a general deer that's good for whitetails, and you can shoot a mule deer when their mule deer season opens in certain areas. Mm-hmm. But I think I want to say they've got like a whitetail specific tag as well. Anyway, if your listeners are interested in Idaho, definitely look up your regs as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually I, I did. I'm not going to I, I want to preface this with saying that I don't know the answer to to that with all areas, but I know specifically uh, I still might be speaking out of turn, but I know in the panhandle in some of the areas there was, you could get a general tag or, or a deer tag that was good for whitetail and mule deer. But the problem was the mule deer season closed, like say, for example, November 14th, and then the whitetail season went till November 30th. So there was like some sort of an overlap there with the seasons that maybe if you, you know, hunted during um, this specific week, you could have a chance at both. But if you hunted later in the season, you know, in the last week of November or something like that, you would only have a chance at whitetails. But right, that sounds that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So th- I, I mean, I have a deer. I usually have a deer tag in Idaho every year, but I have the general, and I haven't mule deer hunted over there in the last few years, so I can't, I can't really speak to that either. Mm-hmm. I've just hunted whitetails over there. Okay. So I guess with with that, there was one thing I wanted to circle back around on when you were talking about the predator aspect. Is that I mean, is that you've kind of I guess for a while now grown up around them and and lived around them and stuff. But is that kind of 
uh, different dynamic, you know, hiking in with a either stand on your back or going to a stand in an area where, you know, you're dealing with grizzlies and wolves or do you, are you seeing them out of the tree stand at all? What, what's that kind of like, you know, coming from an Eastern perspective, that's a whole different dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, um, you know, there's certain areas in the Flathead Valley and in the Sealy Swan region in Montana that you would definitely want to have bear spray with you in November if you're hunting whitetails. Um, there's certain areas where I live, you probably would want to have bear spray with you as well. North Idaho, there's certain areas. I don't really, it, I don't really think too much about it. Um, until I see a track, you know, a fresh grizz track. And I'm like, Oh man, uh, I don't have my bear spray. But I do have my rifle, which isn't, I don't know, There's, that's a whole other topic of discussion. But <laughs> yeah. I, bears, I feel way more comfortable with bear spray on my hip and a rifle in my hand than I do with just a rifle. <laughs> um, or, and, or throw a bow, throw that rifle away and put a bow in my hand. I definitely want my bear spray. Yeah. So it does add a, add a degree of, uh, I, I don't know, um, I wouldn't say walking on eggshells, but you're definitely thinking about things a little differently. Um, yeah, you're just paying attention more <laughs> to what's happening around you as you're hiking in. And, and uh, But if you're in a, I've never had anything come by my stand. Um, grizzly bears, for sure. I mean, our densities here aren't, aren't super high, but over in areas where there are a lot of grizz, uh, I could see it happening. Um, they're, they're out wandering around that time of year. They're they're keying in on gut piles and dead deer <laughs> that time of year, you know? So perfect. Um, <laughs> I would definitely, definitely keep an eye open for them. They're not around every tree and wolves. I mean, I don't, whatever they, they, the only thing that where they come into a play is they can kind of make game hunker down and not move if they're in the area. Um, and I've ha- I've seen that, you know, I've I've hunted areas where it's like, man, there is nothing moving. What is going on? And you know, you cruise a little bit further, and like, oh, well, yeah, there's eight wolf tracks right here. No wonder. And they're and they they're you know the way those wolves hunt, they're just cruising, covering country, and they they break up, and they'll be like, two will go hit a pocket of thick timber, and this other pair will will branch off and hit another packet pocket of timber, and they'll come back together. So they're, they're basically doing like a, a big multi wolf drive, deer drive sort of a deal. And so they get things riled up when they're in the area, (laughs) you know, once they leave the the deer know it and they kind of get back to their normal way of life. Yeah. Um, so, and, and lions, I've seen, I've seen a handful of lions out in the woods when I've been whitetail hunting and they're usually just slinking along. Um, sometimes you'll just see them just like leap across a road or a trail in front of you and then just disappear. There's been a few times where I've walked up on them and they're like walking away from you and you, they don't know you're behind them. Um, but I, I really don't have a big fear of, of lions. They, I mean, they can, they can mess with you and there have been attacks across the country, people being killed by them. But I just, I don't know. I just, 
it would be that'd be a rare rare occurrence for a lion to turn on you i i have heard of plenty of people and i know some people that have been stalked by them but it's usually during like an elk calling sequence you know they're calling elk and they're making cow calls or whatever and they they turn around and there's a mountain lion crouched watching them kind of a deal mm-hmm. and um i would say if you're doing a lot of ground calling that's one to be a little more aware of what's happening around you. But for the most part, I don't give them a whole lot of thought. Yeah. They're out there. They're, they're seeing you. You're probably not seeing them. And they'll, they generally will just go the other way. You know, it's funny. I think they get- it's, it's funny that like the, the first time that when I hunted Colorado, I was like, it's the first time I've really hunted a place that had, you know, a mountain lion population. And I felt like, you know, I was always looking around at first and everything. Then after I got into hunting those type of areas with them, I didn't even think about it anymore. Like this past year, it was, you know, it's always in the back of your mind. But And I've cut a couple tracks in the past, but never anything that I was like really concerned about. Where going out there, you know, it was, it was definitely in the back of my mind just from the fact that, you know, I'm not used to being around it. And I know like some people that come from, areas in the Midwest that don't have black bears to come to Pennsylvania where we have a ton of black bear, you know, it concerns them. And to me, I don't, I don't think anything of it. Like I just, I'd, I'd never really think much about black bears, but you know, I guess it's just, it's just what you get used to. And, and I guess with your situation, having all those different predators probably being, you know, aware of it is definitely important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think it was, was it last year? Must've been last year. I, I did a quick hunt with a buddy of mine and we started off hiking up a trail and there was fresh snow on the ground and we hiked up the trail and on the way in, we cut a big mountain lion track. And actually I think we jumped it in the timber in, in our, with our uh, headlamps on. Cause it was, I mean, it was fresh and it was running like away from us, which was good. And so we went up the mountain a little bit further and then we hit a bunch of wolf tracks and then a bobcat track. And then we got to the top of the mountain and started dropping off the backside. And there was a enormous grizzly bear track. This is the biggest grizzly bear track I've ever seen. And I, we saw a couple, we saw some two mule deer and a couple of whitetails. It was a pretty slow day, but man, the predators were out in force. And then, of course, our boot tracks were predators as well. Um, so, yeah, mountain was full of predators that day. <laughs> it's just crazy to think about what's out there. But the nice thing is, like, we got to come home and, and have a have a beer in a warm house, man. Those suckers are out there trying to make a living <laughs> in, you know, knee-deep snow. It's crazy that they can survive and persist out there yeah that i would not want to be on edge like that all the time you know i like i like being able to to go out and do that but it is kind of nice to be able to come back and uh you know grab a warm shower have a beer and and a hot dinner you know (laughs) (laughs) so yeah yeah, absolutely yeah Yeah, so you you know a white tail that lives you know eight nine years old out in those environments man has he got to be smart and and tough that's for sure Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they get chomped on a lot. You see a lot of dead ones, but you see a lot of them are hit by cars too. You know, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of them get smoked by vehicles on the highway and, 
it's a tough, it's a tough living. That's for sure. Um, but when you, um, and when you see a, a wolf kill of a deer, it is, there is nothing left of those things. I mean, it, it looks like a bomb goes off when a pack of wolves tears into a whitetail. I mean, they eat everything down to the bones. Really? You'll see like a, you'll see like a hoof and maybe like a little chunk of the pelvic girdle <laughs> and, and a piece of spine. I mean, that's it. Sometimes like, yeah, an ear or something, but they eat everything. It is insane. Yeah. That's, it's funny. It. I mean, even coyotes do similar to that. And they always like, you'll find bones in random places. They tear off with them and chewing on them. And, and, uh, even with yeah. like the antlers and stuff too, and, and shed antlers, you know, I found in like weird places that I know I've walked before. And then you see a little bit of like chew marks on it and stuff, you know, a coyote probably was playing with it and dropped it or whatever else. But it's, that's, it's amazing to see how nature works and, you know, nothing kind of goes to waste. That's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I found a moose shed like that in the, laying in the middle of the road one spring. And I know that sucker was not there <laughs> for very long. Um, it was just laying there, and it was full of teeth marks. And there were, sure enough, there were wolf tracks right there in the snowbank nearby. But, yeah, I'm sure they, they grabbed it somewhere out of the brush and packed it onto the road and chewing on it. Which makes you wonder... If, uh, how many big whitetail sheds get packed off and chewed up. Yeah. Cause, cause I've, there's so many, like I found so many big singles. It's like the other one's gotta be somewhere, but it's like, what if something packed it off and chewed it up? Yeah, no, I bet, I bet that happens. Cause I mean, th- this is just my opinion with them, but it seems like a lot of the, like the big whitetail sheds that I've found and my family's found and everything. They're usually, if it's a really big one, they're they're relatively close together. I don't know if it's just uneven weight on their head or what, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Yep. No, it's the same way with elk sheds too. It's yeah, a bigger bull. It seems like it's easier to match up a pair just because yeah they I, they just shed more consistently or I don't know like you said more weight on their head. They just want to get it off. Something. Yeah. No, that's for sure, but. Yeah, so um, Josh, is there anything else that you can think of um, from a you know Western Mountain Whitetail um, perspective that you'd want to you'd want to cover here? Mm, man, well, we covered a lot of ground. We did cover a lot of ground. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I would say, yeah, I would, I would say for if people are interested in coming out, definitely just do some Google Earth research. Um, and I guess another thing to go along with that would be pair up like uh, some topo maps with your research because that gives you some pretty good I- – that gives you a really good idea of what the ground actually looks like. Um, all those little tiny swales, especially if you're looking at some flat country or more rolling timbered stuff, it just gives you an idea of where the little breaks in the ridges are, and where the little – you might you might start connecting these little like pothole swampy areas together. Maybe there might be a little stream that runs between three or four of them, and that might be a great little corridor to go check out for for deer traveling up and down the edges of it. So it, you're not, and a lot of times you're not going to see that on Google Earth. So um, yeah, I'd say grab grab some topo maps of your area 
that you're heading to, do some old-fashioned map map scouting, or you can just download them onto your phone or your tablet or whatever. Yeah, but uh, they they come in pretty handy. I don't know if people still do that or not. I do. Yeah, I know. When I went to Utah this fall, I grabbed all the topo maps for that whole unit. And I had them handy. Yeah, I I like I'm, kind of, I'm a little I'm a little old-fashioned that way too. Well, no, I mean I I love like I mean I use. I rarely even use a GPS anymore. I use, you know, the Onyx on my phone, but I always, when I go to the spot, I, I like having a printed out map. And even like if you're sitting, you know, if I'm sitting down in my basement and reviewing it with some of the guys I'm going hunting with or whatever, I like having a physical map there. And even, you know, when I go elk hunting and stuff, I get one printed out and I have it packed up in my bag. Do I refer to it a whole lot? Not usually, but if I'm with, you know, a couple guys and we want to, instead of looking at the the phone screen or whatever, we'll throw it down on the ground while we're eating a snack or something and kind of, um, look at some spots. And it's, it's, it's nice to have that, that paper map too, you know? Yeah, it is something physical you can, you can draw on and you write notes on and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. That's um, that's a pr- that's some pretty good information. A lot of information packed into this, you know, as far as hunting these these mountain whitetails. And I'm like I said, I'm excited. I hope that uh, get to do that this year. If not, it'll definitely be on the radar coming up here. But I um, yeah. my, my personal expectations or what my goals, I guess, with it are is you know I'd love to shoot the obviously the biggest one on the mountain as we all would, but you know, I'd like to, I'd like to shoot, you know, a, a four year old whitetail, you know, mountain whitetail. That's, that's what I'm looking for, you know, out there. It doesn't have to be the biggest deer out there, but for me, I'm going for more about the experience and the hopes of one of them giant, you know, those ghosts coming by, but with a, you know, a certain amount of days there and everything, I'm going to definitely be realistic with my expectations and, and hopefully make it happen. Heck Yeah. Yeah, I I think you can. I mean, if you just if you focus and and have a good area narrowed down and yeah, come out with with that in mind, I think you'll be successful for sure. If not, I mean, it'll be more fuel for the fire for the next trip for sure. Yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of like me with elk, you know. <laughs> it's one of the things where I'm, <laughs> yeah. I I've got enough fuel. I'm ready to I'm ready to get get that done but that's another topic (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah yeah we should we should talk about elk at some point because that's that's one of my definite passions i love to bow hunt elk well that's what we're gonna we'll we'll definitely talk about that on another episode i'll get you back on and we'll talk elk and and i'm you know i'll tell you exactly what what i was telling and all the other guys i talked to about it i I need your your one tip to help me kill a bull i don't know just one secret (laughs) (laughs) all right Uh, see if i can come up with one no i'm just kidding but i yeah i would i would definitely like to to get you back on here and talk elk specifically and um and i'm sure we could definitely go down some rabbit holes on that one i'll be interested to to hear about that you know oh yeah i i yeah that's that's a topic that i don't grow tired of talking about that's for sure (laughs) it's uh yeah (laughs) it's it's one of those things that like i said earlier at the beginning it's like that's what kind of drives my existence anymore (laughs) i just i cannot get enough it's ridiculous how much fun it is 
And I just, yeah, if I can hunt two states every year for elk and archery season, I'm usually a pretty happy dude. Yeah. And if I don't, it's like, I kind of feel like I'm getting gypped a little bit, but (laughs) I'm, I'm definitely spoiled by the amount of time I, I get to take off and go chase them. And, and my location allows me to hunt a couple states pretty easily. So yeah, super fun. Well, but cool. yeah, that's another topic for another time. Yeah, well, we'll 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 get something on the schedule to do that too, because I'm definitely going to be going out west here elk hunting. And actually, I mean, I talk a lot about whitetails, you know, on the podcast. But most of the people that listen are are about you know going out west and hunting. And for the most part, elk seems to be the first thing that comes up for a very good reason. But um, so yeah, I think we could we could definitely get something going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Too bad you weren't going to be out at Western Hunter. That'd be a good time to sit down and, and do another one, but that's okay. It's yeah. a, we'll, yeah. we'll, I'd like to do one in person with you at some point, just because it's just easier to chat with people face to face. Yeah. No, it's, it's really tough over the phone. Um, I, I, like, that's what I said to you at first, you know, I was hoping to link up with you at ATA and we just kind of, you know, we saw each other there and both were, you know, talking the Sika booth was extremely busy, um, this year there and everything, but I, I would definitely like to be able to link up at, you know, a show and, and be able to chat face to face. It's just, it's just easier to do. That's for sure. Heck yeah. Well, let's do it at some point for sure. Sounds good, man. Maybe, uh, maybe this fall when I come out there, we'll, we'll, we'll link up when I'm hunting whitetails or something, but. Yeah, there you go. That's a good plan. Yeah, I like that. Now you're thinking. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, get like something said, going. <laughs> yeah, and like, I'm, I'm around and I don't know what my plans are this fall, but I'd love to, uh, I'd love to help you guys out if you do come out this way. So definitely keep that in mind. Yeah, oh, I, I definitely will. Um, so I guess with that being said, Josh, where can, uh, people find a little bit more of your work? I know you do some writing and, and some other stuff and, and everything else. Where can people find that? Um, most of the writing that I do anymore is on rockslide.com. So I usually do, I don't know, three to five, six gear reviews a year for those guys. Um, and it very it's all kind of western based gear review stuff. So if you look at rockslide.com, you can find my articles or you can just find me in the forums every once in a while. I'm in there. Um and you can look me up on Instagram as well. And that's this Josh underscore Boyd underscore M T. And so I kinda I try to post a couple images, you know, every every week or so or every couple of weeks and just kind of keep it fresh and keep things Western and cover some of the stuff that I am doing. And I'll post up links to my reviews on Instagram as well. So they can follow me there. Cool. If they're interested. Yeah. If you want to see some, some big elk on the ground and just the, the whole process and, and experience living in, in Montana, you should definitely check out his stuff. That's I, uh, I definitely get jealous when I see some of those pictures. So, oh that's great yeah but anyways josh well um thanks for coming on here man i really i really appreciate that yeah thanks for having me on i appreciate it as well it's been uh it's been fun chatting with you yeah and uh so we'll uh we'll be having you back on here and uh talking soon 
All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.